0: Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward thinking medical professionals doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode of Fat and Furious, I'm joined by journalist Jerome Burns. Jerome Burns has written for virtually every major newspaper in the UK. For over 20 years, his columns have focused on the health of our nation. He was one of the first people to associate statins, and certainly statins before a heart attack, has been as good as close to useless. He also had uh, found the link between SSRIs in young children and high rates of suicide. This gentleman has been at the forefront of journalism across the UK in all of our major newspapers. He's also co-written three books on health, the uh, hybrid uh, diet. He's looked at another book called uh, 10 Solutions to Live In Longer. This is a real superstar uh, when it comes to journalism and especially when we look at nutrition against drugs or medicine against living primarily. Well, in this podcast, uh, I've had lots of people talk to me uh, a lot about the drugs and medication, and there's a quote out there saying that, you know, a lot of medication doesn't work in most people, Uh, whereas you assume you go to the doctor, they give you a tablet for something. But actually, that tablet only has an effect for less than half the people that take it. And loads of examples of it. And I thought, who better to get onto the show than Jerome Byrne, a journalist uh, and a co-author of Food is Better Medicine Than Drugs. How are you, Jerome? <laughs> Very good, thank you. Um, getting a lot of sunshine in the uh, in the lockdown. Excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So you wrote, wrote a brilliant book, uh, Food is Better Medicine Than Drugs. Uh, I've also read Your 10 Secrets of Healthy Aging, and the, the book you also wrote, uh, co-wrote with uh, uh, Patrick uh, Holford, uh, The Hybrid Diet, one of my favourite books of all time. Um, this is my favourite show. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's so familiar with these works. <laughs> um, tell me, uh, let's go right deep straight in then. So I believe that the only time medicine should be before nutrition and nature is in the dictionary, and yet most of our doctors, and I love our doctors, not having a go at them, but it tends to be you go into the doctors, they have a little chat, they prescribe you some medication, and very rarely do they ever talk about nutrition or lifestyle changes. What's going on? Well, there's one simple answer is simply that...
1: Um, the kind of things which a nutritional approach offers doesn't make very much money. Um, there isn't a product which you can sell. In, in fact, very often, the nutritional approach involves eating better food or not eating certain foods. Uh, and so that's, that's one issue. The other issue is that um, if you want to do research on... Uh, anything on drugs. Drug companies are delighted to do it. But we don't really have a system to research things which don't make a large profit. Um, One of the most striking examples of that is uh, antibiotics. Now, we have a problem with antibiotics in that they—they resistance uh, means that they stop working after a while, and there are uh, awful warnings that we're going to go back to the middle ages, not be able to fight off infections, it could be disastrous. Uh, So you might think that the companies that make antibiotics would be racing to bring out new ones and so on, but they don't. And quite blatantly, the reason they give for not doing it is because it doesn't make enough money. So one of the things, if we want to get round this problem and also make available more funding And more thoughts about how do we actually get a a very carefully organized and informed um, system for nutrition? Because, you know, there's an awful lot known, but there are many things which it would be great to know in more detail. But getting that kind of detail gathered from research is is very, very hard because the, um, you know, the funding isn't there. So some sort of not-for-profit or um, government uh, NHS-run proper investigations of the nutritional approach would be excellent. But in order for that to happen, you need to have doctors getting informed about nutrition. And the other big mess is that doctors get about 10 hours, 8, 10 hours of instruction in nutrition in their whole medical training, so they come out thinking, "Oh, it's all a bit soft, and it's not, you know, not very, very good evidence." And most doctors are not interested, or even actually hostile, to vitamins, uh, minerals, and vitamins. Um, and both of these things have come up very uh, importantly in the the crisis with COVID. Um, We can talk a bit about um, why vitamin C should be playing an important role, along with other vitamins involved in the immune system, but which the NHS has consistently blanked as far as making
0: it available to patients. Yeah, you you touched on some really, really good points there. Uh, I must have interviewed now probably 150, 200 doctors. And nearly every time that question comes up, I say, you know, how much did you learn about nutrition when you were at med school? Some say, I don't remember any. Some say, I remember one lecture. Some say, well, probably about a day. But most of them, it's like it's either non or just a totally insignificant amount. Then you start talking about vitamins. What How big was the course on vitamins and minerals, which we all know we need to be taking? None, to a little bit, I, oh, I can't remember. So it just doesn't seem to come up in med school. So it's not the doctor's fault, is it? It's the no. system's fault. So that's the first one I think I wanted to pick up on uh, there. But then, then then, then your point about who's going to fund the research. Who's going to fund the research that says, actually, you've just been diagnosed with diabetes type 2. You've got two options right now. You can go away for a month. You can eat real food. You can cut down the carbohydrates. You can cut down your sugar intake and come back. And if it all looks well, we're okay, we're on the right path, or you can take the medication, because sadly right now, as my dad witnessed, it is straight in, you've got a really high score of uh, uh, sugar in, uh, count in your blood, your Hb1ac is way too high, here's metformin, or here's insulin, which of course, uh, you know, has had all the research behind it that it, you know, can be part of a solution, but it doesn't really you know, solve the, the, the root cause. So yeah, who's gonna fund the research to say, eat more broccoli, it's just not gonna <laughs> happen? Well, the, the simplest
1: thing about uh, the, the diabetes thing is a very good example, because it's really a no-brainer to say, if you have a disorder, which means that you have problem handling blood glucose, um, then it's probably a good idea to eat less of foods which make glucose, which is what carbohydrates are. They make glucose. and so. Um that seems to me to be something we shouldn't even have a discussion about. And yet, um, the ketogenic diet, which is the low-carbohydrate diet, which has a lot of other knock-on benefits, which we've come to, um, the ketogenic diet is still highly controversial. Um, only, uh, I don't know, two, couple of weeks ago, uh, there was an article in New York Times, I think it was, um, which was about the fact that there had been a big trial, which showed that people with diabetes, who were put on the ketogenic diet, low carbohydrate diet, were less likely to fall victim to COVID, uh, because people with um, diabetes are, are much more likely to develop the disease, um, the infection. Uh, but the the mainstream have supposedly, the groups whose job it is to look at what should people be eating, have been uh, constantly coming up with the findings that we should eat, I don't know, 100, 150 grams of uh, carbohydrates a day. People on the ketogenic diet would be having maybe 20, 30 at the most. So very big drop. but when there's was then a, uh, there's quite an active group in America who are looking at the science and the research and so on and writing in journals about it, and they pointed out that the data on which these government bodies are saying eat a, a good level of carbohydrates have been missing out, uh, leaving out um, studies showing benefits of low carbs. Um, there was a... They claimed that we couldn't find any good studies. And the team, uh, Nina Tischolt is a a very hot campaigner on this. um, And they found 50 trials, which this body that was supposed to be looking at the science and giving the best scientific uh, evidence had just ignored. So there's another problem, is you, you need to have regulatory bodies who understand what's going on and give unbiased um, uh, findings. And I don't want to get too conspiratorial about it, but it's certainly in the UK, a large number of the similar bodies who also had problems with finding studies uh, supporting a low-carb approach, they have connections, they're paid by the big cereal companies. And uh, something like one of the big trials, one of the big uh, committees, it's called Sacken, um, they had, I think, something like six out of nine had very clear links with large cereal companies, large sugar companies, and so on. So it's a horrible mess. And we, we really, if we're going to start tackling the metabolic disorders that we're facing, uh, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, cancer as well, um, we have to have a reliable source of information about what works and what doesn't. And at the moment, we have a system which is very heavily influenced by commercial interests.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I know in your book, uh, in fact, your journalist uh, career, uh, you're one of the first people to highlight the, the fact that you know giving statins to people that haven't had a heart attack probably has inexorable benefits, if any, at all, and Malcolm Kendrick shared some data with me, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but it says something like this. Uh, when the panel decided whether LDL level should come down, in other words, you know, you, you, what's acceptable and safe needs to come down another, another notch, Uh, On that panel, the chairman had no conflicts of interest, but the nine people on the the panel between them had something like 80 conflicts of interest. In other words, they were all funded by the vast majority of the statting companies because just one half point lower on an LDL, what is acceptable for good health, meant billions and billions more revenue uh, for the statting companies. It just is frightening. And us as consumers, we're just unaware... You know, you go to your doctor, doctor says, right, uh, your statin levels are are no longer safe. You go, well, they're the same reading as last year, doctor. Yeah, but they've decided the level needs to come down. Uh, And and you just go, okay, well, then I must take statins. And yet the reality is the panel were all influenced and being paid for by, uh, 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 you know, the pharmaceutical companies. And there's a great phrase out there that says, it's hard to disbelieve something when your salary depends on it.
1: Very good, yes. And in fact, in, with statins, it, it's a, a controversial area, but it's certainly the case that for one person to benefit from taking a statin regularly, um, something like 150 people have to do it. So it's, it's that sort of rate. If 150 people take it, one will benefit by having fewer heart problems and the rest will get no, no benefit. This is from uh, prophylactic, the um uh, taking it before you've got it to stop you having it. Um, there, there's a, what might be quite a shocking account. I don't know quite how much time we've got, but um, there was. Uh, so, so stop me if if I'm going on too much. No, no, we have all but, the time in the world. All the time in the world. <laughs> but um, there was uh, when you go to the doctor and you you give your symptoms, the doctor. The, the part of his job is to look at, consider your symptoms, maybe examine you, but but, but uh, maybe run some blood tests, and then come up with a diagnosis. And he will say you have this or that. You have high blood pressure, or you have diabetes, or um, and for each diagnosis, there is a corresponding drug. So it, it's really a drug dispensing system. Um, and it's called QOF, which is quality and outcomes framework and it was it's it's what gps work under they they follow QOF. and if they're found not to be really following in other words they have people who have a diagnosis and they haven't been given the properly approved drugs um, then they uh, get mm, problems from the local authority not the local authority but the Care, the, the local commissioning bodies, whose job it is to oversee doctors, um, so uh, this system of quof um, means that people, uh, the, the uh, GPs' practices, will their job is to look out for people in their practice who might be uh, rele- they might be vulnerable to be getting ill, getting high blood pressure having diabetes, and uh, they should then be given the appropriate drugs to stop it. And this, of course, is the reason why elderly people, you were saying earlier on, uh, are on five, six, ten drugs by the time they get um, into care homes, for example, um, because it's the inevitable uh, result of getting older getting frailer, having a mu- immune system which isn't working so well, possibly not eating a very good diet. And at each of those stages, you're going to have a, another disorder, the solution to which is to take a drug. So in theory, this system, if you get the people, you give them the drugs which reduce their risk, they should be healthier. They should be uh, having fewer disorders as they get older. But actually, um, the, this Quaff system was tested in um, uh, roundabout. There were some trials, um, analysis of the data. And what it showed was that despite 10 years of following this cough system, giving people drugs which were supposed to cut their risk of disease, had no clinical benefit at all. Um and perhaps not surprisingly that these reports were published in The Lancet, um, they were not at all widely picked up. I think I, I was probably the only
0: person who actually wrote something about it. Um, yes, I mean you, you so, wrote, I mean, you wrote in your book, prescribed medicine or medical intervention has become the third leading cause of death in the USA. I mean, <laughs> you know, frightening. Um, yes. And uh, uh, in another one of your books or articles you wrote, uh, 50% of people over 65 are now getting five drugs per day, and that was quoted in the BBC. Um, right. and, and you know what? I, I can get it. My, my mom's on a oh, – well, I went into a cabinet the other week when we went round, and a frightening amount of drugs my mom's on. And I understand some of them because she's got a serious pain in the shoulder that they can't get rid of. But my dad's on so many drugs, and when I, when I ask him what they're for, he's got diabetes, he's got high blood pressure – but he, he couldn't name half the drugs. And I've kept saying, let me come to your doctors with you. Let's sit down. I want to know if, what every single one is for so we can start looking at areas where we can maybe start deprescribing you. And you wrote about this beautifully in one of your books. You said, it's a bit like swallow a spider to catch the fly. And as soon as I read that, I thought that was, that was magical because that's what it is. You take a tablet to stop inflammation, but that causes headaches so you're giving another pre- uh, pill to prevent the headaches but that increases blood pressure and so the cycle goes on and i'm sure that it's what that's what it is you know my dad is on so many medications it must be one to treat the other and then that one to treat the side effects of that and then a different side effects because nobody's ever had those three together and now another problem happens, and therefore we're now tr- Oh, and now all of a sudden you've just got diabetes because you put on <laughs> excess weight because all the medication, because we know yeah. a lot of medication stops the benefits you get from good nutrition and vitamins and minerals and so on. And, and all of a sudden, and your point in a second goes so valid. Life expectancy is going down and down, even with all this medication.
1: And it's, it's also p- worth pointing out that um, <clears throat> the... What happened again in COVID, I'm interested in COVID because it seems to be a sort of stress test of the medical system that we have at the moment. And to be frank, it hasn't really performed very well under it. Um, and if you look at people in care homes who, as we know, have been particularly vulnerable, um, A, they are on uh, this astonishingly high number of drugs on average um, and this clearly has not reduced their risk of um, poor health because it's people who have disorders, um, diabetes, heart disease and so on, who are more at risk of the the, the virus and the group who if the, the uh, pharmaceutical approach to prevention work really well should be protected from it are the ones who have uh, suffered the worst, um, and that's one of the, the the other side of what the um, uh, the the virus has shown us is that um, there really is a, a complete lack of interest in um, the the uh, the nutritional approach, um, and if you look at what happens with the ketogenic diet. What it does is it reveals all sorts of levers and um, switches, as it were, in the body, which you can affect. You can affect it with diet, you can affect it with um, behaviors such as exercise or eating particular food and so on. So um, in a a very curious way, the the idea of drugs uh, is that they're very sophisticated. They've been properly tested. They're the result of lots of research. And this nutritional stuff is really not much evidence, not much trials, not much research on it. And we've talked about why that is. But if you look at the polypharmacy, the heavy drugging of elderly people, which is a logical result of the the medical approach, um, you ironically get to a stage where there's no evidence, there's no good trial evidence that it's doing any good at all, because you can't run RCTs, or no drug company is going to do this, run RCTs to say, what exactly happens to the health of people who are on 10 drugs? Do do they do better? Do they have a better immune system? Is their guts working better? Is their um cardiovascular system working better? We have no idea. It's a logical extension, and when you get to the end of the road, there's no good uh, scientific evidence that what you're doing makes sense at all. And then the people who support scientific evidence turn around and say, oh, well, the evidence for nutrition and so on and so forth is not very good, haven't been enough trials, we can ignore it. Well. The same is the case
0: in spades with the the pharmaceutical approach. I mean, here's the crazy thing, that the way I look at it. Um, Life expectancy for a male adult, not all life expectancy because I'll explain why in a second, but male life expectancy today in 2020 is shorter in Great Britain than it was in 1870, so 150 years ago. If you were an adult male, now if you look at all the data, it doesn't support what I'm saying. And that was because sadly back then there were so many infants that died either in childbirth or before the age of five. But if you got through to being an adult in 1870, your life expectancy as a male was three years longer than it is today as a male in the UK. What happened in 1870 was for a four or five year period, we was over farming of obviously good nutritional, you know, genuine natural food, and that all classes had access to real, wholesome food wasn't about medication. It was about eating natural food. So just that anecdotal, you know, we're looking for evidence, and nobody's funding nutritional studies as opposed to medical studies. There's not evidence, but maybe it's anecdotal. But back then, you could live longer without air conditioning, without this, without that, you know, just by eating real foods than today where we're over-medicated. And that, that has to yeah, be
1: part I, of I didn't know one, but that's very interesting. There's another study uh, which was done by one of my heroes, who's a guy called David Healy, who is a psychiatrist who has been very critical of the... Uh, he's not critical of drugs, but he's very critical of the way that um, SSRIs and uh, antipsychotic medication is used and, and studied and researched. And there's a quite a conversation we could have about the SSris which we were talking just before the, the recording um, which stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors which is extraordinary that such a mouthful should have become a, a successful slogan as it were but w- what it means is is that the our system normally um reuptakes in in other words it it puts out serotonin and then it clears it away. Now, you might think that if the body clears something away quite speedily, um, there's a good reason for it. It's part of the system and it's how it's designed to work. But pharmaceuticals, uh, in an awful lot of these cases, the assumption is that they know better. uh, So what they do is they block the reuptake. Um, which means that the serotonin that's around in the gaps between the synapses, between the uh, nerve uh, conduits, um, they uh, have the serotonin there to, to transmit the messages. So the idea is is that um, serotonin is, is associated uh, with good mood, and therefore if you have more of it around, your mood will be better, and... Um, and that's what the um, that that's what the, the the drugs do. But of course, there's all sorts of problems that come up with with serotonin uh, in, uh, uptake inhibitors. Um, not least problems with suicide, um, which was well known way back when the, the late 1990s, when David Healy was doing uh, research on it. Um, so he's a, a doctor who's been um, sceptical of the benefits of drugs, although very happy to use them in situations where he feels are appropriate. But he published some work um, which showed that the life expectancy of people in his area, which is in North Wales, where the population has stayed quite the same for, for since the 1880s, 100 year, uh, years earlier when he was doing it, um, the, the expectancy of people in the big mental asylums uh, was actually 20 years uh, longer than people who are nowadays kept on uh, SSRIs, antidepressants, um, and uh, the anti-psychiatric drugs. Wow. Frightening. So, yeah, same sort of picture.
0: And before anybody thinks we're completely a pair of nutcases that go, like all drugs are bad. We're not saying that at all, are we? I think that we'll come back to no. Yeah, our thing is, let's look at if you can do a lifestyle change first and nutrition before you sign up for a lifelong you know, uh, subscription uh, prescription of drugs, is there a lifestyle choice you can make? Is there a food choice you can make before uh, you sign up to drugs? And, and, and just out of interest, uh, in as far back as December 2003, Dr. Alan Rose, Who at the time was the international vice president of Glasgow Smith Klein, I can never say that properly, uh, who are one of the biggest drug companies in the world, 81 billion in revenue per year, British pounds, back in December 2003, came out in a national press article. So he's involved with the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world, or one of them, and said the following He said, The vast majority of drugs, more than 90% of them, only work in 30 to 50 percent of people it's not frightening you go to a doctor you get prescribed something you've got to take this statin you've got to take this blood lower impression you've got to take this uh, metformin that they only work collectively over 90 percent of drugs in less than half of the people that take which, them so which, you
1: know, which is why i think the um the the, the virus has thrown up the fact that. Uh, the response of the the medical profession to dealing with it has to been to ignore nutrition completely. There's no suggestion that you might do anything to improve your immune response or what's involved in it. Um, and the only thing that they have been they've been putting huge amounts of money into it um, is to try to, is to look at the that one of the strategies has been to look at the genes of people who. Um, are particularly more susceptible and or um, le- less likely to uh, get the uh, to become badly infected and try to find out uh, if there are particular genes which can be blocked um, that that's a sort of standard approach you um, and it's one that's been done in cancer it's an, it's a standard approach because um, It's a it's difficult. It's expensive, but the drugs that you produce as a result, certainly the cancer drugs, can be sold for huge, huge sums of money. So again, if you're looking to what are we going to do to deal with the next um, uh, epidemic, and one's going to come along, um, then having some drugs available is a lot better commercial strategy than having. Um, ways to improve your your health nutritionally and it can i I, i'm not quite sure where we're doing with time but i think it's worth just making a point about just how sophisticated the nutritional approach can be because it's very often portrayed as we have all the science and the um high-tech strategies for gene sequencing and and uh uh, gene manipulation and, and there's all this high tech stuff, and the suggestion that just eating more or less carbohydrates or um, increasing your intake of broccoli and so on can make a difference is seems absurd. But um, can I just do a quick shout out for nutrition? Please do, yeah. We, we've got plenty of time. Plenty of time, by the way. So great. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that that's come out what well, once you start looking at um, what goes on with the ketogenic diet um, is that you burrow into uh, a lot of things which go on in the body, which help to keep the body functioning and and keep it working well, but which um, are certainly not the focus of regular medicine, um, but nutritionists are getting increasingly interested in it. What happens as I said just a bit earlier, what happens when you get um, your uh, blood sugar level right down, the body responds as if it's in a famine. So it pre- starts uh, releasing fat, producing these ketones. And the, uh, the, the, the primary reason is to replace glucose um, in the brain. And so these ketones allow the brain to keep functioning Uh, And instead of using glucose, they can use ketones. And it seems possible that in cases where there's neurological damage or degeneration, that giving, which is nearly always with glucose being um, the the prime source, replacing that with ketones seems to be able to make a difference. Um, Again, it's early days, and again, it's difficult to get it researched properly. But there is evidence that both in the case of Alzheimer's and in the case of cancer, that these can make a difference. And immediately there, you have um, uh, an indication of, of how the metabolic approach is very different from the mainstream approach, because you've got three disorders which are um, considered quite separately. Medicine organises its specialities in silos. So you've got diabetes and Alzheimer's and cancer. They're all very separate disorders with separate symptoms and so on. But underlying them, there's stuff going on which the ketones uh, can all all play a role in. Um, In the case of cancer... They play a role um, because the cancer has difficulty in processing glucose in the normal way, which is through things called mitochondria. Um, and when you reduce the carbohydrates, you reduce the amount of uh, glucose that's available. And so the, um, the, the cancer cells, which can't use Uh, ketones, because they have a problem with their energy-making system, uh, they uh, start to uh, die off. And and there are examples of cases of people where uh, a a, um, low-carbohydrate diet has had great benefit on cancer. Um, And the additional advantage is that unlike chemotherapy, chemotherapy, which damages or kills off uh, cancer cells, as well as healthy cells with equal ferocity. Um, in the case of the ketogenic setup, the, ketogenic, the healthy cells are able to use ketones to function, um, and it's the cancer cells only that are affected by it. So, and of course, in the case of diabetes, you're reducing the, the, the um, glucose, and, in the case of Alzheimer's, you're affecting brain cells. but the there's the things going on there. And one of the most important things that go on that play a role in both um, diabetes and in cancer is something called autophagy or autophagy, which um, uh, autophagy is the American pronunciation. And this is a natural cleanup system which is triggered when the body uh, goes into ketosis. It's really the body saying, there's a problem out there, there's a shortage of food, Uh, we need to batten down the hatches, and we need to sort of start repairing things. And autophagy is a process that goes on in every cell, nearly every cell, I think there are one or two exceptions, um, which is a sort of cleanup squad um, and the, there's this uh, uh, truck, kind of garbage truck, called the um, phagosome, I think it's called, which goes around and collects up damaged proteins, because in a cell, cell is like a factory, and it's making energy, there's the power plants, it's also making proteins uh, out of amino acids uh, following the instructions from the DNA, and uh, there's also other detritus in, in cells, uh, bacteria and viruses for that matter. And so having a regular cleanup uh, is clearly good for sort of general functioning and health and so on. And the this, uh, this garbage truck collects up all these damaged bits and puts them in a uh, lysosome uh, pit, which has a lot of enzymes in it. And the enzymes break down the proteins into the, the building blocks, which are amino acids, and then spits them out to give you um, more uh, building blocks for new proteins. Um, and that's uh, so. If if you uh, damp down that process, uh, if I'm, I'm sorry. If you activate that process, you get a cleanup process going on in the body, um, and that can be turned on by the low-carbohydrate diet. If you, But you can't do it all the time because then you're not making things. And there's another system, which is called mTOR, which is involved in building things. So if, for example, you're doing a lot of exercise, you need to have your mTOR system working because that's to do with making new tissue and building things. Um, and mTOR is also important for building new immune cells and also for um, building blood cells. So there's a balance in the body as there always is between this cleanup system process and the building process. And a skilled nutritionist um, their job is to spot at which stage you need to turn on or turn off one or other of them. And one of the ways of doing that is with fasting and, and not just the low carbohydrates, but actually going further into bringing down calories really low. Um, and so that you've got uh, the potential with manipulating your fasting in such a way that you can use the cleanup and the growth in order to make new tissues. Uh, there's um, a guy called Walter Longo in, the, in, the, in America, who's done a, a diet where he gives uh, a, a very low calorie diet for five days, which brings down activity, stimulates autophagy, clean up, and so on. And then uh, quite a few cells which are damaged die off in that process and then they get switched back to a, a, a more high-calorie diet, and um, that enables new cells to grow. And he's done some extraordinary experiments, which are so hopeful, With uh, initially with rats, and I think it's now going on to humans, mice, I think, rather than rats, um, where he put uh, mice who had uh, autoimmune condition um, where, where the cells, diabetes, example, uh, type 1 diabetes, where the cells are uh, attacking uh, the, the pancreas, the immune system is attacking the pancreas, so it can't produce insulin. Um, and the cells which are being damaged, when they get uh, renewed after the five-day diet, which uh, Walter Longo was running, um they come back uh, without the autoimmune um, aspect to them, so they stop attacking your your cells. So huge potential to maybe affect rheumatoid arthritis, um, type 1 diabetes, and so on. Very, very early days, don't want to be over-egging it, but it is a remarkable example of the quite dramatic changes that can happen once you understand uh, nutrition understand what you're doing and you add things or change things or support things.
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, if you just go back to the cancer one for a second, you know, that book you co-wrote with Patrick Holford, uh, he he wrote in there, I think he wrote it in there. (laughs) I've got a terrible memory. Uh, But he either wrote, it was either in that book or he's told me this. He said, look, if, if you don't believe too much sugar has an association with cancer spread, why do you think when somebody goes in for a PET scan, the dye that they put into you to find out where the cancer is, is pretty much glo- glucose, because then what happens is the glucose travels through your body. Wherever the cancer is, cancer loves sugar. Bang, you see all the sugar or the glucose go to where the cancer is. That's its, its preferred uh, food choice. Uh, and therefore, if you can starve cancer of sugar, we're not going to say you'll get rid of cancers. We're not saying that we totally prevent it. But it's kind of logic, if you eat less sugar, consume less sugar, if that's sort of the pre- the the preferred food choice of cancer, it's got to be a good thing. Then back to what you're saying about Alzheimer's, lots of doctors now calling it uh, a diabetes type 3. So again, diabetes type 2 is when you've had too much sugar, too much carbohydrates, you have insulin, you have too much insulin, you get insulin resistance because you've been trying to store too much uh, sugar uh, getting it out of the blood. So So everything you've pointed to there... And I love the autophagy uh, uh, thing, which is the, the, the simple way I explain it, it's black and white. Your body's either digesting food or it's in repair. And you can't be in repair while you're digesting. So the whole point of fasting. Well, is can, to, can I just say
1: it's, it's not so much digesting. I mean, digestion is obviously hugely important, but it's more that it's using the resources to do more building, to do growth. And obviously, cancer is, is a prime example of growth but also recovery from exercise involves growth. You've got to regrow the muscles. There's one further complication. I don't want to make the whole thing too complicated, but it's just really an example of how sophisticated this underlying system is and how if you want to deal with disorders which are to do with energy and food, you really need to understand them and the drug model doesn't. The drug model is aware of these and is trying to target them with, with uh, looking at the genes and to make um, drugs to target it. Um, but uh, well, let's see it. They've been trying for quite a time. And one of the examples of the problem involved, if you just use the drug model, is that although reducing the availability of glucose um, may well be an effective way of um, making cancer able to grow less far, uh, slower, um, may be beneficial in fighting cancer. You have to be careful. It's not just a question of, oh, well, let's knock out the thing which is allowing it to grow, which is being one of the drug suggestions, because... Uh, autophagy, the cleanup system, can be hijacked by cancer cells in order to help its growth. Because if you remember, um, what what the autophagy does is to collect up proteins, recycle them and turn out more building blocks for growth. And cancer is, of course, a system, it's a rogue cell, which is programmed to grow really fast. And in order to do that growth, um, you have to have um, amino acids to build your new cells, which is what cancer wants to do. So once cancer cells that have turned in the direction of cancerous, they get to a certain point where they're wanting to start building other ones, autophagy, they can use autophagy to do it. So. Again, you need to be careful. You can't just block one, which is a pharmaceutical approach. You have to know what's going on and be aware of it, and and uh, do
0: manipulations uh, based on that kind of knowledge. And I guess that's why a lot of doctor friends are saying that you know, definitely cutting down sugars to prevent cancer might be a good, good thing. But once you've got cancer, that that, that you can't just say that because all of a sudden. There's a lot more things at play but
1: there's a lot more things going on and cancers are jolly clever and although quite a lot of them rely on sugar they can also get energy from amino acids and from fats and so they can use them to produce energy as well so and they they switch if you damp down their sugar supply they will wiggle around and find another one
0: so what we've talked about cancer alzheimer's we've talked about diabetes uh, our good friend, Dr. C Malotra, uh, very famous these days, uh, post-COVID, been on, I think, every single major news uh, uh, station. Uh, and he says, uh, one in three hospital admissions amongst over 75s are a result of an adverse drug reaction. So what... what, what how do you see this playing out? We think we're over-medicated. We're not really getting any longer life extension. Extension. We're not getting any health extension. In other words, the amount of healthy years uh, we're getting. There's more drugs than ever. There's a pill for every single ill. Uh, we don't get taught nutrition. Uh, or doctors don't get taught nutrition in med school, but they do get taught uh, diagnose, prescribe, diagnose, prescribe. How? Where do we turn? How do we turn the corner? where does it change what do we all need to be asking for of the system
1: well yes indeed big, big ask because the the evidence um for the benefits of of nutrition um as opposed to drugs was uh, there was a version of it set out in the uh, food is better medicine than drugs which was uh, published about oh at least uh, t- 10 12 years ago um and there's been further reinforcement of it, but it was certainly there uh, uh, as a, as an option then. And I remember um, one of the reviews of the book, which was done by somebody in the Guild of, uh, no, the Medical Journalists Association. Um, and they started the book, uh, started the review by saying, Having waded through 100 pages of pharma bashing, we then get on to... So that that was the, the idea that you were questioning the benefits of sleeping pills, of statins, of SSRIs, all these widely used drugs, and saying, actually, there's another way one can do it. Maybe if you started with nutrition and then moved on, um, it would do rather well. So the idea that nutrition it can be an answer um, is there, and it's very sophisticated. The more we get to know about how the metabolism works, the more complicated it becomes, and the more simply ignoring it is, it doesn't become, um, is, is hopefully, less of an option. Um, I don't have a simple remedy for it. I do know that um, young uh, doctors, people who are going in, uh, teenagers and and early 20s who are going through med school at the moment, are much more aware of this. I have friends of my children who are going through med school and they're much more um, concerned about the fact that they're not taught about it. And some of them have actually attempted to set up um, lectures and talks and so on to, to inform them about it. Um, I think if, if there was a, a, a drive to put um, nutritionists as a part of the um, process of, of receiving patients, it would do amazing results for, for the results of, from doctors' practices, because a lot of the patients who are problematical patients for them, people who have long-running problems which the drugs don't seem to solve, Um, respond very well to a a different nutritional approach. Maybe they have some sort of allergies or maybe they aren't getting enough of minerals and vitamins and so on. There's all sorts of um, uh, deficiencies in minerals and vitamins uh, which cause uh, problems which aren't then well treated by uh, a drug approach. Um, So education, education for doctors, education um for the uh research I, I think that um i'm quite keen on the idea of getting more research being done on non profitable um treatments and in fact there was an interesting article in one of the um american medical journals the um uh, the, which was it new england journal of medicine i think where they said, "Look, as far as um, uh, anti um, the drugs which are used to deal a- a- with bacterial infections, antibiotics were not um, we don't have enough of them, we need new ones, and they're not being developed by the drug companies. What we need is uh, not for profit organizations. Now to have that. As an article in a top medical journal, which is heavily involved in pharmaceutical approach, is really a sign that there, at some level, there's a thought of we we can't simply go on only pursuing uh, treatments which make a lot of money, um, and maybe with a coming depression, uh, the combination of a coming depression, and plus not having anything very um, to offer patients to reduce their risk, because there weren't any drugs available for it, um, might just uh, promote a sea change. And certainly Malhotra's talks about the ways in which what you need to do to cut the risk of heart disease, which involves diet and following diets and and following lifestyle changes, exercise, and so on. and there's other doctors who are running courses to explain about uh, lifestyle medicine to doctors and to educate them. And they've been running courses which a last a weekend, I think. So it's very just an introduction. But they've had 200 uh, GPs at a time coming along saying, this is extraordinary. Why didn't I know this? I could do a lot with my patients that uh, really got me stuck. Um, David Unwin, who's another great campaigner who pushed the idea of the low carbohydrate diet for diabetes, Um, and you mentioned that he was very keen on unprescribing and the money saving that could come from that, Um, that kind of change, uh, he had um, hundreds of doctors coming to him and saying, tell me more about it, what can I do, it sounds really interesting. So... um, there are sort of hopeful signs, but it needs to be um, some sort of campaign, uh, somebody, money. Getting the funding will be difficult, but maybe a, a grassroots movement. Yeah, um, I, I think I, probably it'll be come from, from underneath yeah, to say I, you've I, got I, to do better.
0: I mean, the frightening thing is, in fact, Dr, again, Dr. Masi Malotra he says uh, he... He accuses the drug companies of spending twice as much on marketing than they do on research. Think about that for a second. The big pharmaceutical companies spend twice as much on advertising, marketing their drugs than they do on research. And the vast majority of that is aimed at the doctors. So no wonder doctors want to prescribe something. They've seen the adverts, the glosses, the pretty young lady that looks great, even though she's got this, that, and the other ailment. I wonder... If it's a case of educating through the schools, so parents understand, so kids understand, so we the generation start to understand all this, and then, then when they're sitting in front of the doctor, and he goes, "You've got high blood pressure. You need to take this medication." The parent, the parent, parent turns around and says, "Well, I thought that if we get little Billy exercising a little bit more, cut down the amount of bread, pasta, rice, potatoes he's eating, and find a way as a family to get him to eat more, uh, you know, of his five a day, more vitamins, more minerals through the food." Uh, then that can uh, that can lower the blood pressure, can't it, doctor? And then the doctor, of course, could go well. It could. <laughs> so, so maybe <laughs> well, it has. Maybe. I mean, that's
1: a nice. Uh, the, the the root of the problem here, though, is that the people who are the authorities on treatment uh, are doctors. So if you want proper advice about whether you should take vitamins or whether you should. Have a particular diet, or whether you should. Change. The person you're told to go to is a doctor, which is a bit like asking your carpenter how you might rewire your house. I mean, it, it's, um, it's the wrong profession, um, and it's a profession that's not trained for it. But it, it's it's a really big problem because the the approach to say what we need to do is to get more people on drugs. Drugs really work well. Um is so powerful and supported by so much money that it it's difficult but um, some sort of a, a, a grassroots movement um pushed by doctors like uh, Dr. Kendrick, Dr. Unwin, Malhotra, these are all people who have put their head above the profit uh, above the parapet and have been uh, roundly attacked for it uh, the, the standard Um, allegations of quack and and, uh, uh, fake news and so on are all hurled at them. Um, So it's not risk-free to to, uh, suggest that there might be a better way of doing it. As you said, no one's talking about getting rid of drugs. Um, They do a lot of, you know, they're very beneficial. But the idea of dealing with metabolic disorders, the kind of ones that we're faced with now, um, where people are overweight, um, have uh, not enough exercise, have high blood pressure, so on and so forth. That that the the, the pharmaceutical approach is not going to work, and um, maybe um, entitled baby boomers as they start uh, um, declining and possibly moving into homes and their maybe with uh, their children having a a greater awareness, that might be another sort of source of of change. But um, certainly something to put nutrition forefront and to say, this is where you start. um, It's difficult to see a healthy Britain without doing that.
0: Yeah. Someone's got to go sit the health secretary down and say, look, what don't you understand about, you know, one ounce of prevention is worth a Ton of cure. What bit don't you understand? That 150 years ago, when we all had really good nutrition, the cancer rates wasn't the one in two that we're told by cancer research today that we're likely to expect in Great Britain. It was like one in 50, one in 60. Heart disease was hardly a thing. Alzheimer's was hardly a thing. You know, suicides and depression and anxiety were hardly a thing. And we're just we're dying. Younger certainly, men are dying younger than were 150 years ago. We've got more medication than ever. We should be like I spoke to a doctor the other day. I said, "Look, surely we should all now be living to 120, 130. We're safer than we've ever been. You know, the chances of you know having an accident are far less than when we were you know we we're, uh, were dying of frostbite in the winter and and you know and being chased down by animals and yeah, accidents and farming. You know, we're safer than we've ever been." We've effectively got the best NHS in one sense we've ever had. Nearly all the chronic illnesses, and of course, COVID is a bit different, but if you look at nearly all the things we used to die of 100 years ago, they've pretty much all been wiped out with the exception of pneumonia. We should be living to 120. All that's happened now is we're dying of different things that weren't even around 100 years ago. Wake up, smell the roses. The medical thing, just medication, medication isn't working. Can we please look at good nutrition?
1: Well, it, it would make um, wonderful sense, but I was, I, I know I have become something of a um, obsessive about vitamin C, but only because I've been utterly amazed by the way that the uh, medical profession has responded to it. it. It's not a mad thing to say that vitamin C is an essential part of your immune system, and there's all sorts of things, elements of the immune system. Which depend on vitamin C to work. Um, it, it reduces inflammation. It reduces the damage from uh, oxidants, these um, particles which get um, inc- hugely increased your, as a process of infection. Um, it boosts the activity of the uh, the various cells, neutrophils and macrophages and so on, which are responsible for fighting off viruses and, and attacking pathogens. Um, so it, it's it's it's. It's there. It's a key player, and the idea that you should give it to people who've got an infection is, is fake news and ludicrous, which is what's happened. Um, it's it's incomprehensible, really. It, it it's, um, shows a complete lack of interest and knowledge of an important, vitally important element of what keeps us healthy and safe. Um, so. Uh, uh it might be interesting at the end of this, there will be studies coming out, um, randomised control studies, and also reports of use and so on, which I'm pretty, very confident will produce impressive results. And there's going to have to be um, questions asked about, um, it was this known uh, about this potential? If not, why not? And um, wouldn't it make sense to use it next time around or start using it right away?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, your good friend Patrick was saying the other week that, you know, even if people want to hope and hope and hope and hope we get, um, uh, you know, a, a cure for it or we have a vaccination for it, so that's all one thing. But, you know, if you have a vaccination, what's it doing? Well, it's just helping your defense, you know, your immune system. Uh, and therefore, those who will get the best benefit from a vaccination will be those with a strong immune system. So why not start building up your immune system with vitamin C and vitamin D right now so that if the vaccine does come wrong, the chances of it working for you as an individual uh, are greatly sort of uh, 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 greatly increased?
1: Well, there's, there's an interesting bit of research, which I was uh, reading about only within the last few days, which was that... Um, If you look at uh, centenarians, people living to over 100, there's obviously something about the way, probably their genes, maybe to do with their their lifestyle as well, but but certainly the genes would play a part, which enable them to um, essentially throw off diseases um, or not succumb to either infections or the kind of um, metabolic diseases that we've been talking about. So they're healthy people, and the key thing is that they what they what they have in common is that they don't get ill early on. In other words, uh, in their fifties, sixties, seventies, they don't succumb to illnesses. Um, and when those people who are who ha- uh, have um, reached a hundred, and they do get ill. They die at the same rate as people who are who are ill and get those diseases, heart disease and so on. They they uh, are affected as fast. So it's not that once they've got an illness, you need to to treat it. It's that there is prevention. Yeah. Prevention is the secret to. People who live a long time is that they don't get the diseases which then cause problems in, in their system. So, and the we've seen that, that drugs are not very effective for prevention. So, and what you need to do is to have a, an informed uh, relationship between diet, between um, emotional states, uh, but exercise, all of these things which could contribute to keeping you healthy. Um people, we need to learn how to live healthily, uh, and that way we'll stop having this huge, wet, constant growth of uh, sickness, which the NHS is having to deal with, um, and pe- the, um, the, 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 the miserable end of life where you limp on uh, sick for, uh, uh, and being given more and more drugs. It's a horrible prospect. Um and starting and, and living in a way that keep, makes that far less likely to happen seems an a, a essential start to a proper medical profession.
0: Absolutely. It's been fascinating as always talking to you, Jerome. Uh, one thing <laughs> I always ask on the Fat and Furious podcasts, um, uh, and I've asked everybody, um, it might sound a bit of a strange question, but um, what would you like your legacy to be?
1: Um I think probably he was right. <laughs> that, that, that would do me. <laughs> he warned us about all these things, and by God, he was right. Uh, brilliant, <laughs>
0: absolutely fantastic.
1: Well, lovely, lovely talking to you. Keep up the uh, the great work. Thank you very much. Keep reading the books. It's we'll, wonderful to have you. Know that you're are, out are, there you are you writing
0: a new one at the moment? Uh, we're thinking about something. Yes. Okay. So, well, fantastic. We'll put we'll put all the links to your various books up. Certainly, your latest one is in my top two, or three health books I've ever read. The hybrid diet. You alluded to it a little bit mm-hmm. earlier on about sort of sort of fasting and keto, and then going back to a regular diet and keep switching yeah. uh, for the benefits of. Uh, I think that's
1: very very. It's a very useful example of what nutrition can do because it's very powerful. Um It it. it the the fasting element makes over a lot of changes. Um, maybe the, uh, the the getting rid of autoimmune conditions would be a brilliant breakthrough. Um, but it's doable now with the food that are uh, foods that we have, and uh, it just involves reorganizing your your eating and and so on. Um, but that sort of um, use of nutrition. Uh, hugely exciting and it would be great if it was taken up more widely.
0: That's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Thanks for all your advice today and we look looking forward to speaking to you soon. Great. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFpodcast and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.